Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we'll introduce you to the host of our newest show here at NEPM, The Rundown, launches tomorrow morning, giving us all a look at the goings-on of Western Mass. And Carrie Saldo joins us to give us a sneak peek of what to expect. We'll have a little tabletop sunshine for those cold, dark days with Justin Dowd of Start Playing Games, who will help us explore some winter-themed board games. And Congressman McGovern joins us for our weekly McGoverning, where we'll explore the first-ever Food as Medicine Conference, the bipartisan passing of the Child Tax Credit expansion, and the purpling of Worcester County. And in case you missed it yesterday, the city of Northampton's Liquor Licensing Board was forced to cancel two of Eric Schur's liquor licenses at their meeting on Tuesday. This has a a lot of implications for the city of Northampton as a whole, but at that same meeting, the board opted to give one, the one license that they had reserved to the Parlor Room Collective for the Iron Horse. That's good news. And on top of that, the Parlor Room Collective has just announced the opening date for the illustrious venue. So let's check in with the folks at the Collective to see what all of this commotion really means for the nonprofit and the local music scene. Dateline Northampton, February 1st, 2024. New chapter for musical icon The Iron Horse by The Parlor Room Collective to reopen May 1st, 2024. Now hiring for all restaurant positions. And joining us from The Parlor Room, DBA, The Iron Horse, as we were saying on the show yesterday, is Chris (laughs) Freeman, the executive director. And we're going to talk about some of the exciting stuff that comes in this press release about when you're going to announce the first shows at The Iron Horse. Maybe get a teaser or maybe you can come up with a quiz that you can turn it into a guessing game of who it might be. Uh, But (laughs) we had reached out the day before to talk about liquor licenses. So we had uh, Jill Kaufman, NEPM reporter on the show yesterday, uh, who was part of the licensing commission hearing, talking about Eric Shore and the liquor licenses that were to be allocated to the Iron Horse, two of which got canceled. And for clarification for people who were listening to yesterday's show, not by the licensing commission of Northampton, but because there were too many liquor licenses in Northampton. Yes, Essentially, they had overages given by the state, and because they were now not being used, they just kind of go away. We are back at the level of licenses that we have been allotted. Yeah, Northampton didn't cancel them. Essentially, the state did. And then I was getting all of these worried texts from my friends who were wanting to believe that the Iron Horse is going to reopen, that, oh, no, the Iron Horse cannot have a full liquor license. Chris Freeman, that's not the case, right? You were given a license by the city that they happened to have in their back pocket that they were probably going to use for something else, but knowing the importance of the reopening of the Iron Horse have granted to you, correct? Correct, yeah. We're really grateful that the city helped us us through this moment. But yeah, the transfer was unable to go through uh, that, that we expected, but it's operationally for us, nothing really changes for us operationally. We're, we're still looking at a May opening. We should have our, we should have a liquor license in place. It's not going to have the same number associated with it that we thought the, uh, <laughs> we thought the other one would, but none of that matters. So we're good. And the m- number doesn't matter for those who are worried. It's right. just like the number of that is on the license. Right. The number of the license doesn't change anything with your particular plans for opening or with banks for like any sort of money changing that needs to happen on the remodeling end, correct? Right. Yeah. No, it's is a relatively cosmetic change. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Our bit to, to get the place up up and running. We're hiring staff. We're all on track for, for a May opening. And uh, the hiring begins now with the, uh, the kitchen staff, which is exciting because you'll be getting to work with the daily op people, daily operation in East Hampton, and they are such incredible chefs. But we're, we're going to have to belabor this liquor license thing a little bit longer, I think, Chris, from the parlor room slash the iron horse. Uh, you mentioned in an email that you sent to us yesterday that this would now cause a renegotiation with Eric Shore as... We mentioned on the show yesterday 
yesterday, the Iron Horse building is not owned by Eric Short. It's owned by Central Chambers, if I remember correctly. Yes. The part of what the parlor room bought from Eric Shore was the brand name of the Iron Horse and a liquor license. So can you talk about where the renegotiation is now with Eric Short that a liquor license is not part of it? Yeah, we've been in talks with them for the last couple of days um, since this became clear. And it's, we are renegotiating the deal to not include the liquor license. But overall, the rest of the deal will just remain the same. In the end, I feel like the the question for me would be like, does this actually save you money that you're able to put towards the remodel? Or are you not at liberty to say any of that? Uh, yeah, it does save us money. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> Do would you like to say how much towards that? Uh, the you're not paying the, for the liquor license that would then go to the remodel of the of the building. Um, I I can't right now just because we the paperwork isn't fully like signed, sealed, delivered yet. But every everybody seems to be acting in good faith on the negotiations, and everybody really does want the Iron Horse to reopen and be successful and continue the incredible legacy from Jordy to Eric to now the Parlor Room Collective. The place has has only grown in stature and only become a more important part of our community over the years. And so we really just want to continue the legacy of the of the Iron Horse and also bring it into a new mission, but still one that, that respects the, the history of the place. You were planning on opening the Iron Horse for a little bit during the Back Porch Festival. The license has been issued, essentially, right? So No. No. We have to, still have to get the state. We're now, we're doing like a Butters, where we have to do advertisements in the Gazette and all that. So we really start the whole process of applying for it. So that oh. was kind of the bummer is that this is all just taken much longer than we than we were anticipating it would. So, so yeah, but we, we do int- expect that it'll be fully licensed and uh, with a full alcohol license by the time we open in May. What about for the Back Porch Festival, though, which is in March? Would you have to get a temp? I know they're available in certain municipalities, temporary licenses for those particular events. Is that sort of the plan of strategy if that hasn't all gone through the state paperwork in, in time for those shows in March? Yeah, well, I'm not positive that the shows in March are happening. We haven't ah, announced that yet. Okay. But we are going to, we're going <laughs> to, uh, uh, we'll 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 get to that when when it comes. Okay. <laughs> Spoiler okay. alert. We'll, we'll, we'll stop projecting now. We'll stop projecting. We're just hoping and wishing. Um, <laughs> we're even more eager than you are. Yes, you no we, definitely, we definitely are. And we're speaking with Chris Freeman, the executive director of the Parlor Room Collective, who will be running the Iron Horse as soon as May, if not before. We are hoping. We are hoping. And so one of the questions that we had yesterday with Natasha Yakovlev from the Licensing Commission is now the the town of North. Northampton, the city of Northampton has fewer liquor licenses essentially to play with or do with what they will than they thought they were going to have. They may be holding one in their back pocket for the reopening of the Calvin because Eric Shore again is involved in this. Is there any fear that because it seems like the paperwork and the jot and tittle of all the things that need to happen have not been done in the appropriate time frame that this Iron Horse deal could fall through or no matter what goes on from here on in, Iron Horse, Parlor Room, Central Chambers are going to be able to continue forward regardless of if Eric misses some key dates or details. No, there's no there's no fear that the deal will fall through. We have a we have a 15-year lease on the space. We are 99% to a fully executed purchase and sale. It's literally just we have to we got to get together and sign the papers or they're they're signed. We just have to execute the the purchase and sale and then we'll we'll be open in in May. No, I I don't I don't foresee any sort of change once we finish this with with Eric, we're we're done. We're we're moved on. I don't think about it all that often these mm-hmm. days, especially now that we have a license that we're 
actually moving forward with. A lot of your negotiations have gone on previous to this point in quote unquote good faith. Does that feel like that's continuing despite the fact that this particular element did not happen in the way that it was anticipated to happen? 100%. Yeah, it's gone actually better than I hoped. And now you don't have to pay for that liquor license in the same way. So, you know, that was my interpretation of the first reading. I was like, this is either really, really good for the Iron Horse or really, really bad. Um, and yeah. I'm, I'm glad it seems to fall in the really, really good category. May seems really soon. That is a lot sooner than I thought you would be ready to open the Iron Horse in general. Are there things either license related or construction related that are kind of in the back of your mind that might interrupt this schedule? You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Fair enough. You know, so that's what we're. That's I mean, what we're. Uh, again, we're projecting. <laughs> we're basically saying. Yeah, if I mean, these are the things that <laughs> these are the things that do worry me uh, at times. I think that's obvious. Whenever you're starting something like this, and to figure out exactly when you don't have a whole lot of time to say like, okay, we're open and nothing's happening in here. We need to get going. We need to have our cash flow start in from an operational standpoint in order to make this all this all really work. You know, that being said, we don't know what we don't know. I would say there's about 200 things that have to go right in order for us to be fully open and completely ready to go on that first day. But I think there's a sizable number of things where we would be able to phase it in uh, while still opening at that point. We're speaking with Chris Freeman, the president of the Parlor Room Collective, who will be running the Iron Horse Music Hall. The press release from today says with a legacy dating back to 1979, the Iron Horse will once again pulse with live music and delicious food starting May 1st, 2024, May Day. You also say in the press release that you're going to announce the first batch of performers there on February 15th. Do you want to give us a, a clue, like a guessing game? And like, you can neither confirm nor deny, but like Khalees and I and our listeners can all be like, whoa, whoa, whoa who's it going to be? You can feel free to say <laughs> I no. I could. To... I think you I, did just say I, no. <laughs> I really wish I could. I, I really want to say that this is a lot different than announcing a festival or something where you start with your headliner and then you work your way down the list. That's not the intent of this. We're booking this like a sustainable club that will continue for a really long time. And the first show is, while it's really exciting, it's the first show of thousands and thousands of shows that we hope to put on there. While this is really exciting to, to get it going and we, we these first shows are going to be like really well-known artists who have legacy at the at the iron horse some who don't that first show announcement is going to happen on the 15th and then there's going to be another one a week later and another one after that and that's going to continue for at least the next 15 years while we have the lease in space yeah so what you're saying is it's your band parsons field that's going to be the first one right <laughs> yeah, no, I have to. <laughs> That's a hard no. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we know who it's not. Chris Freeman from Parsons Field, the band and executive director of the Parlor Room Collective. Um, before we let you go, you are asking people to come to work and be part of the kitchen staff there. What do you need? Absolutely. Yeah, we're starting. We're hiring all all kitchen positions from executive chef to uh, general manager to line cooks, runners, porter. So the whole, it's all at ironhorse.org, but it's working with kind of under the, under the direction of Dave Schreier of Daily Operation, who's our restaurant consultant. And we're just really, really excited to kind of create an atmosphere for the staff that, that feels mission-based, just like everything else that, that we're doing. I know we're excited about 
the first few acts that you're going to announce, but like I am equally excited to hear and see what is going to end up on your menu. Oh my gosh, yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm so excited to share that. We actually just got we did the first draft of the first real draft of the menu yesterday, so we're we're moving along on that the drink menu. We're we're working on a uh, uh, draft cocktail selection, so oh, that's nice. going to be a kind of a fun way to start. Yeah, we're stoked. Khalees, you could have your old job back. Okay. Yeah, come on. Are you trying to get rid of me? <laughs> no. <laughs> I just want free tickets to the Iron Horse. Hey, I know Khalees. She's in the kitchen. Come on, Khalees. One night a week. <laughs> Don't help me. I might say yes, actually. <laughs> well, we're rooting for you. Chris Freeman, the executive director of the Parlor Room Collective. What looked like it might be bad news for the renaissance of the Iron Horse in regards to liquor licenses turns out is good news, and we're really excited to hear about those first acts later this month and to be there maybe as soon as the Back Porch Festival undisclosed and uh, uh, definitely on May Day 2024. Yeah, and if I can give one other little little plug, when shows are going to go on sale, it's looking like March 5th and we're going to do a one-week members pre-sale at that time. So it's going to be available for Parlor Room Collective members, uh, those first shows for a week uh, before they go on sale to the general public. Membership for the Parlor Room Collective includes free shows every month. It includes discounts on every show and obviously access to these pre-sales, both at the Iron Horse and at the Parlor Room and at Black Birch Vineyards where we put on shows and all that. And best of all, membership is free if you are have a student ID, if you're on Mass Health, if you're on EBT. So all you have to do is show up at the Parlor Room or talk to any Parlor Room staff member and, and we can sign you up for a free membership so that you have access to those discounts and those pre-sales as well. So you can go to parlorroom.org slash memberships to to learn about that. But that really is a huge way of, of, um, of supporting the organization and not only financially, but also just to show that we have a community of people that really we make up what what this what makes this place special so i encourage people to to check that out chris freeman from the parlor room and the iron horse thank you so much thanks for having me Khalees and monty you guys are great anytime NEPM has reached out to Eric Schurer for comment but have not heard back. However, a follow-up to the canceling of those licenses, Mass Live is currently reporting that Eric Schurer's liquor licenses transferred to other businesses were canceled over tax issues. The article by Juliet Schulman Hall also says that the owner of the restaurant Gombo, who was not granted one of those, quote, over quota licenses and couldn't take advantage of Shore's now canceled licenses thinks he was, quote, screwed by the town and screwed by Eric and questions whether he will stay in Northampton. Ah, coming up, we'll give you a preview of NEPM's newest show, The Rundown, with its host, Carrie Saldo. And winter meeple madness and more with winter-themed board games. Right now, getting into what's good on Capitol Hill with Congressman Jim McGovern. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Hello there. Hey, I'm sorry. We, we, they called an emergency hearing, so I'm, I, but I'm, I got a break now, so I can if oh, you want to do it now, we can do it now. Yeah, what was the emergency hearing about? Uh, to provide one of the Republican members with some cover on a tax measure that's going nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like an emergency to me. Yeah. (laughs) Time for our weekly check-in with U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, McGoverning with McGovern, who's in the process of McGoverning right now uh, in the halls of Congress. And uh, I think shockingly to many people, 
there was a bit of bipartisan legislation passed yesterday. The House passed an expansion of the child tax credit yesterday evening. Uh, it was a vote of 357 to 70, supported by both Republicans and Democrats, a $78 billion package that's now sent to the Senate, where its fate is somewhat uncertain, although the White House has indicated that it would support it. Um, there were some progressives who did not support this child tax credit. I had a hard time finding the vote tally when I was looking it up today. But what was your vote on this child tax credit that passed in a bipartisan fashion in the House yesterday? I voted yes, um, and um, I voted yes. Uh, I mean, yeah, there were so, so some progressives and some really hardline right-wingers who voted no. Mm -hmm. um, but I voted yes, even though it's an imperfect bill. There are some tax provisions in this bill that benefit uh, entities that I don't think need any more benefits. Uh, but uh, this is a, a bill that's going to lift hundreds of thousands of children out of poverty. Uh, there's some relief in terms of affordable housing in this bill. So look, I mean, the Republicans are in charge of the House, and we get some stuff that I think is important for people that we care about. And uh, this is an imperfect place. But I, I thought, it, you know, when all was said and done, it was the right thing to do. And groups I listen to all the time, like uh, the Children's Defense Fund and, and Network, a Catholic Social Justice Organization, and the Center for uh, American Progress, and the Center for Budget Priorities, things that we people we work with who are leaders in the anti poverty effort, uh, all strongly supported this, save the children, I, I go on and on and on. So I thought in balance, it was worth supporting. But we, we will see what happens in the Senate. Uh, I think it should pass in the Senate, although now we're hearing senators, Republican senators say they may vote no on it because uh, they don't want to make Biden look good. Right. Oh, That's the, the headline in the Huffington Post today. The Republicans against yeah. it, they don't want Biden to look yeah. good. They don't want these checks to go out before um, the 2024 presidential election. Can you talk a little bit about how this is in any ways similar to the previous expansion of the child tax credit, which we've talked about on this show before, but which did yeoman's work in fighting especially childhood hunger. It essentially halved right. childhood hunger with the stroke of a pen. Is this going to come close to yeah. that? Is this something that will be expanded in perpetuity? Is this have a sunset clause attached to it? Yeah, well, all these provisions have sunset clauses on them. First of all, it is not as generous as we want it to be. And so the hope is that if we can get this over the finish line, then next year, the hope is we will take over control of the house and be able to expand on this and be able to help more and more children get out of poverty. Look, there are a lot of people in this country, a lot of working families in this country um, who can't afford to put food on the table. Uh, and this child tax credit would, would help them. We need to talk about expanding SNAP. We need to talk about a, a bunch of other stuff as well. And we have an affordable housing crisis as, as well that we need to deal with. So this, this is a step in the right direction, it's a significant step, but it is not as significant as many of us would like. And so we're going to finish this next year. That, that's our hope. What would this mean for a person that has one, two kids under the age of 18? Any ideas on what those figures might look like? I don't have in my head what the figures would be, but it would be, it, it would help them. Mm -hmm. um, and again, um, any amount of help that can come to struggling families with children is welcome at this point. Yeah, I was basically just asking for me because I have two kids yeah. under uh, 18 and one who's in college. So, you know, <laughs> send me the money. Uh, speaking with U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, another uh, – big thing that happened yesterday. It is a follow-up conference from the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health, which you urged the Biden administration to convene, which I was lucky enough to attend. And this was the first ever 
conference on food as medicine with uh, health and human services. Talk to us about what that conference was about yesterday. Well, I think what it was about was about understanding that in, in ending hunger, you know, we can't be siloed. It's, it's, it's not just about programs like SNAP and WIC and, and Meals on Wheels. There's, there's also a health component to this. I mean, you know, we, we, we believe that, you know, hospitals ought to be able to offer people food prescriptions. We believe in medically tailored meals ought to be able to be prescribed for people who have been in hospitals that who get released um, so they can recover. I mean, one of the, one of the biggest drivers of costs in programs like Medicare and Medicaid is people get hospitalized they get, and they get released, but they don't, you know, they don't have access to nutrition. And so they end up back in the hospital, you know, and they have other complications. You know, nutrition can be preventative medicine. Nutrition can be curative uh, as well. And uh, our medical system seems totally detached from that. I mean, there are examples in Massachusetts and around the country where that's beginning to change. But for years, they were separated from each other. You could become a doctor in this country and never have to take a course in nutrition. This is a long overdue conversation. And I was really happy that Secretary of Health and Human Services, Javier Becerra, led this. And, you know, we were beginning to raise awareness and hopefully beginning to create a climate in Congress where we can actually pass some legislation that could make a meaningful difference here. Given all the potential savings in Medicare, Medicaid costs that food as medicine could bring. Was this a bipartisan conference yesterday? Were there members of the other party who seemed interested in this as a, a way going forward? Yeah, Senator Roger Marshall, a Republican of, of Kansas, uh, also spoke at the uh, at the conference. And, you know, we're going to have some differences on specifics, uh, but at least agreeing that this is something that needs to be addressed in our country, um, I think is an accomplishment in and of itself. But yeah, there were Republicans, members of Congress who are interested in this. There were business leaders, uh, in Democratic and, and Republican business leaders. There were leaders in the insurance industry there. And I challenged people in the insurance industry. I said, look, you know, people like me don't always say nice things about you guys. Uh, <laughs> but here's your opportunity, you know, to get a compliment. Um, and to start covering some of these services and some of these benefits in a way that actually helps your, your subscribers. You know, but there's so much we need. Hospitals need to do more. I mean, you know, our medical schools need to do more. We need to get nutrition lessons and cooking lessons into our schools uh, when kids are young. Uh, we had a little demonstration yesterday from a bunch of young kids in the Washington, D.C. public schools who are learning um, how to cook and basic uh, lessons in nutrition. And it was really inspiring. But every school in this country, you know, needs to adopt a component of this uh, because getting to people when they're young you're going to get better results than kind of changing habits when people are older. It was, it was a really, really good conference, and I think some good things will come out of it. But the momentum is continuing, and, and I'm really happy that the White House conference wasn't the one and done, that it's continuing. And again, the people that were there represented a whole diverse array of business interests, of nonprofits, of healthcare uh, interests, you know, academic interests, uh, child advocates people fighting for senior citizens. I mean, it was really quite an impressive group, overflow crowd. And I think it's great that you got to see some young chefs from the D.C. area yeah. uh, cooking at this conference on food as medicine. At the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health, I met a chef first off in the bathroom, but then we got to talk later as well outside of the urinals, which was an awkward conversation. Uh, the famous chef, Jose Andres, who yesterday, yeah. I believe, 
uh, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi, you and other members of the Democratic Caucus nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Tell us about yeah. uh, why you wanted to nominate Chef Jose Andres and, and the process of – I know I had heard the day before that some Republicans had nominated Donald Trump for the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> what is the process of nominating someone for a Nobel Peace Prize as a, as a member of Congress? Yeah, I mean, there is a process, believe it or not, and your nomination has to literally be less than a page, uh-huh. um, and you have to make the case. Other than that, there's no requirement for a nomination to be considered. Look, I've known Jose Andres for a long, long time. I mean, he's a great chef. Um, he's a great humanitarian. Uh, but the stuff that his World uh, Central Kitchen is doing all around the world is deserving of a Nobel Prize. I mean, he's he's literally feeding people who otherwise would go hungry or even starve to death. He's on the front lines in Gaza trying to get food into Palestinians who are on the verge of starvation right now. Um, and, um, and he is trying to break down all kinds of walls and build all kinds of bridges. Wherever there is turmoil, wherever there is suffering in the world, he and World Central Kitchen are present. So, I mean, you know, feeding the hungry is a noble thing to do. Again, as I've always said food ought to be viewed as an essential human right for every single person on this planet. But Jose Andres has been out front and he's been effective. So it's not just talking the talk. I mean, he literally walks the walk. He raises the money from donors all over the world. Um, and he is doing what governments should be doing, but have failed miserably. I'm really proud of joining with Nancy Pelosi and Rosa DeLauro was the other person uh, who joined with us. And, I, and I'm hoping the Nobel Committee will look favorably upon our recommendation. Speaking with U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, McGoverning with McGovern. Jose Andres is one of the folks who has been to Gaza to help with that situation. And we've talked many times since October 7th about the war in Gaza. And earlier this week, you met with members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and their national president from Haifa. I saw on the, after the photos were put on social media, there was some critique about whether they're Muslim or not. It strikes me as the kind of people that, you know, are born again Christian that say Catholics aren't Christian. So I don't know the nuances of their actual brand of Islam, but Tell us what you learned from that meeting and your continued call for a ceasefire now. Well, you know, I mean, many of their community are present in these areas that are quite dangerous right now. But this is a a group of people. This is a a faith that is dedicated uh, to to peace. And, you know, they are about building bridges. It it was just it was a very positive conversation, uh, you know, about efforts that they're trying to launch in the United States and around the world to get people to start talking more seriously about ending the uh, ending the violence and, and getting a ceasefire. This morning, I, I read that President Biden is talking about having the United States formally recognize a Palestinian state. I think that's important uh, at this point. You know, we talk about ceasefires, but it stops the bombing. But then what, right? Is it a military occupation? Do people continue to stop? We need to be talking about what comes next. And Prime Minister Netanyahu has repeatedly said that he is opposed to a Palestinian state. I think if the United States could, could formally recognize one, uh, that increases pressure on not only him, but on uh, hopefully encourage other countries to join on board. And we can start thinking about what happens when this is over. So I, I don't know how this will all end up coming to uh, fruition. But uh, but again, you know, we want to cease fire, but we also want dignity for the Palestinian people. We want to secure Israel too. People in Israel ought not to have to live wondering whether another October 7th will happen. At the same time, the Palestinians deserve to live and have their their rights respected uh, and be able to live in a place where they can actually have a good future, where their kids can be raised 
in a place where they don't have to worry about violence, but also where, where they can earn a decent living. My hope is that, you know, in the coming days and weeks, we'll see maybe some more positive things develop from the administration. Before I let you go back to your emergency session, there is a primary next Tuesday in the state government for Beacon Hill for a Republican seat that was vacated by Peter Durant, who went to win a special state election for senator. No Democrats in your area, in the Worcester area, Worcester's district, uh, filed to run for this open seat. Is it a foregone conclusion that Republicans have taken over Worcester when it comes to at least Beacon Hill? And does that make you worried for your seat coming from Worcester on Capitol Hill? Well, first of all, you know, I've been around for a while and I know one thing, and that is I'm not universally loved. There are lots of people who are always contemplating how to uh, get rid of me. But I I think you may see a Democratic candidate emerge in the November election, potentially. You know, some of the outskirts of Worcester, some of the towns around Worcester are are pretty red. But uh, look, one of the challenges we have, and I say this when I speak to groups that I don't even know what their politics may be, we need good people to want to do this stuff. And it's really hard to uh, encourage people, young and old alike, to want to run because because this business has become so rough. But you can't get good government if you don't have good people and people that represent your values. So so it's always a lot to ask. And you know, I've talked to a few people who might be interested in running, but they ask, you know, oh God, I, I just want to put my family through all this. Uh-huh. But you know, but we need good people at local, state, and federal level who represent our values and who will fight for the things we care about. So you know, nothing's a foregone conclusion. Look at it. When I ran for Congress the first time, I unseated a very popular Republican incumbent. It was predicted I would lose and lose big by every major media outlet, including the Boston Globe. You know what? I, I worked hard and I talked to people and I told them what I believed in and I convinced the majority that uh, I was better. So we should never write any districts off. And debate is not a bad thing. So we'll see what happens. But anyway, I'm, I love all the cities and towns I represent. <laughs> U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts representing all those cities and towns joins us every Thursday. You can always send your question for the congressman at thefab413 at nepm.org, and I'll ask them on your behalf. Thanks as always, Congressman. Get back into the chamber. Talk to you soon. All the best. We're super excited for you to meet the host of our new sibling show, The Rundown. Carrie Saldo joins us shortly. But first, she'll have to beat us in one of the winter-themed board games we explore with Justin Dowd, organizer of Start Playing Games. Yeah, Carrie. No free rides. (laughs) You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. You can start with, hey, Justin, I'm Monty. Hey, Justin, I'm Monty. (laughs) Hey, Monty, how are you? Good. I hear you're a game nerd, and I love that. I am a game nerd, and I have been practicing. And I do want to share something with you, Monty, really quickly. We lived on the same street for about 20 years. What? I grew up on G Street. Wow. uh, Yeah, so So I... from about when I was five until I was about 25, I lived on that street. So did we overlap? Because I've been there for 20 years. You you were on the wrong side. So I was further <laughs> down by the fish ladder. And so I would be listening to the radio on the way in, and you would be talking about G Street, and I'd be like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, I'm still there, and you were wise enough to leave the patch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I loved it growing up there. I'm glad I'm not there anymore. Yeah, my kids love it. We love being yeah. near the river. There's a lot of beauty there. And then occasionally really a shooting. So what are you going to do? We yep. would call that checks and balances. <laughs> yeah. It can't be idyllic all the time. Every once in a while, there's got to be something terrible uh, that happens. Yes. Mm-hmm. It can't all be natural disasters. Sometimes you got to make the terrible yourself. <laughs> <laughs> 
We are here with Justin Dowd of Start Playing Games, an organization that just gathers people in the area together to play games in area and sometimes play test things. So yeah, Justin, we gathered you here because these are the cold winter times when it's nice to be inside sometimes with your friends and maybe play a game or two. So how about winter themed games? I have so many winter themed <laughs> games. I've got games. I've got I've listed Some of you games might even survive, talk right? About. One game that I know that if I say it, I'll just make Khalees scream. So uh, that's always fun. I'm not going to talk about that one just yet, though. I'm going to start with a little bit easier games and things that I think that would be really great for just about anybody. Um, so the very first one I want to talk about is a game called Ice Cool, which nice. if you've never seen this game, you have to look up a picture of this. The entire game, you take the box and build a bunch of rooms for a classroom for penguins. And then it's a flicking game where one of you is the hall monitor of the school and they are trying to go and catch all of the other kids running amok in the school. And so you just got to kind of flick your piece into them. But all the other kids are just trying to run into every room in the school and just cause as much chaos as they can. And so it's just a really silly game. Because it's a flicking game, you get in this weird situation where like people start to try to do trick shots and do spins and try to make it jump over the, the walls. It is absolutely hysterical to watch. And it's also like, it just looks great in it. It's a really cool looking little game. It's totally worth taking a look at. What's the name of that one again, Justin? That is Ice Cool. Ice Cool. Yeah. Also just really fun to say, right? Yeah. Another one that I would recommend to folks is one called Hey, That's My Fish. <laughs> Which, again, I guess I have a bit of a penguin theme here, so sorry about that. Uh, also, you are penguins that are on, on a glacier, and you are running around trying to grab fish from around this glacier. But every time that you take fish, it takes a piece of the glacier away. Oh, it's too real. Too real, a little too real. But what you're, like, what you're really trying to do is like cut off your friends from the really juicy fish so that only you can eat the delicious fishes. I feel um, like that's also a little too real. Yeah, it's the capitalism of board games. <laughs> a little global warming in there, too. It's not super great in real life. Yeah, yeah. Monopoly. <laughs> um, that's my only other penguin-themed one that I had with me, though. Seriously, uh, Hey, That's My Fish is a really fun one. Again, little small box, super great for families. The next one's a bit of a cheat. Uh, Ticket to Ride Nordic Countries. Ah. So Ticket to Ride is just a great game. I think it's one of those games that anybody who is looking to get into board games, they should try that game. Like, if you have any curiosity, it's a great place to kind of get started. There's some really good choices to be made there. And Nordic Countries adds just a little bit on top of that, um, which a is the little. nice thing about... <laughs> a little. <laughs> a little bit of snow on top of that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's just a little bit more than the original version, but it's also a smaller board. And so the gameplay is just a little bit faster and it's, it's just a lot of fun. And I mean, you're never going to go wrong with tickets. Right. It's any, a trains game, as opposed to the Penguins games before. Yeah. It's a train-themed yeah, exactly. game. And the yeah. Nordic one is two to three players, so you don't need a whole lot of people to play mm -hmm. it either. And like some of the choices you have to make with tunnels and how the rainbow trains work is a little thinky. Is it real Nordic? Like you're looking at real geography and real places? Yeah, it's Norway. Ah, cool. 
so you can learn some geography while you're playing with the game. We used to play this with my now 10-year-old when he was about four, and he called it Trains the Trains, and he thought the trains looked like chocolate chips, and we'd have to put them in a cookie tin and put them in the oven but not turn it on. That was his version <laughs> of playing Ticket to Ride. That's so you can make you can do whatever you want with the games that you have. There are so many things involving your oven, some of which have not gone well. Oh, yeah. My children have put so many bad things in my oven and turned it on. An Avatar The Last Airbender mask. Oh, dear. Yeah. Anyway. So another one that I want to talk about, this is one that just came out. And it's from uh, actually the designer of Wingspan, uh, Elizabeth Hargrave. And uh, I've only gotten to play this once, had a lot of fun with it. I'm looking forward to playing it some more. It's called The Fox Experiment. And uh, The Fox Experiment, uh, kind of going back to the playing games and learning stuff, based on an experiment that happened in USSR, I think in the 1950s, if I'm remembering correctly. I think a little, little bit before, before then, but yeah. Where they were learning about domestication by like, breeding wild foxes to see whether they could kind of domesticate them the way that, you know, dogs did over millions of years. And they found all these really neat things like, you know, as they, they dogs were bred for their, or the wolves were fre- foxes were bred for their friendliness, they started getting traits that we would see in domesticated dogs, like three curly tails, floppy, floppy ears. ears, all kinds of other like neat little ideas. And that's really what the game is about is they breed a, a, a fox, you make a little fox baby that then goes out for everybody else. And then you keep breeding the foxes and it does more and more stuff. And the best part is that you just roll an absolute bucket of dice to, to figure <laughs> these things out. Like by the end of the game, you can't fit all of the dice that you're trying to roll in your like in a single hand and you've got to kind of like cup it like you're hoping someone's going to pour some water in there and then it's it's a really fun game i think it's really neat i think it is way simpler than the rule book applies it's a massive rule book and it's really got like four rules to actually play the game they just went really really in depth on it but i think it's a really great game and i think that you're gonna people are gonna be talking about it for quite a while and also foxes are adorable the little meeples are just so cute and frankly like more rules rather than less rules is a thing that like the redundancy in rule books is a thing that that I don't necessarily mind because the times when people leave things out where they really shouldn't have is way too often. Yeah, but people like me that don't play a lot of games like you do, we'll get a game and it'll be like so all-encompassing and comprehensive that we get to we tune out, we can't figure out how to play the game. It's easier to just find a friend who knows how to play the game and go through it once most of the time, in my opinion. Well, and nowadays, like a lot of them have how to play videos, so you can look it up on YouTube if the rule book is getting overwhelming. Yeah. And just use the rule book to look back on if you have questions. Justin, you have regular game nights. Um, I do, yeah. Tell us about those. So the, the actually, you you did a perfect segue on that, Monty, which <laughs> is that the entire goal of what I do with my game night is that I, I do think that people find modern board games pretty intimidating. And I, I think that that's fair and unfair, depending on what games we're looking at. And so a lot of what I'm trying to do is to make getting into some of these more complicated games easier. I always have a featured game that I'm going to explain through and make sure that people really understand and play it with them and make sure that they can actually get what they want out of it. They can decide if that's going to be a game that they want to play, if they want to go out and buy it. More and more games come out every year and a larger and larger number, just trying to make it as fun as possible with as little risk kind of going in that you're going to have to do a lot of extra work. Yeah, because really risk is such a long and complicated friends. game in and of itself. And if you yeah. don't start in Australia, you're probably not going to win. Yeah, right. No, 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 no. These happen bi-weekly? In That's Eastern? right. Yeah. Uh, bi-weekly. Every other Wednesday is when we do it. Uh, and I have a Facebook page called Start Playing Games where I make sure to post an event page so the folks know what the featured game is going to be. 
uh, in advance. We do it at the Brass Cat right now in East Hampton, which is an absolutely lovely place to go hang out, have a tasty drink. Uh, and I hear that the Shirley Temples are also amazing. <laughs> you're not a drinker, but uh, it's it's a really great place. It's a really great group. I've been doing it for almost eight years at wow. this point, mm-hmm. and uh, we've been going strong because it's just a really wonderful group of people. All right, what is? You have one more because I didn't squee yet. And right. I, I'm wondering, so I'm wondering I if this is Frostpunk. <laughs> I, I want you to know, Khalees, I thought about Frostpunk, and I didn't, because that is such an expensive game. I didn't want to throw that out of That's right. It's also a very long, very hard to win, very um, emotionally scarring game, but yeah. I enjoy it quite a bit. I didn't really want to bring that to the winter crowd. I know that the, 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 the winter brings the sads, but the one I have for you, Khalees, is Dominant Species. <laughs> There's the squee. <laughs> Yeah. I did it. So the Dominant Species, which is a really great game, it was kind of known as like the first worker placement game, which is like the mechanic that I kind of learned in the hobby big time. But it's about species pre-Ice Age. And so as you are playing the game, the world is entering the Ice Age. And so winter kind of fits in there. Just a long (laughs) winter, right? Uh (laughs) Winter is coming. Yep. But yeah, another big, long, complicated game, but it is a, a really, really wonderful game. It is one of the more important games in kind of board game history at this point. And I uh, got what I wanted. That squeal was great. Thank you, <laughs> And what was the name of that one again, That Justin? one is Dominant Species. Okay, so we've talked about Dominant Species, The Fox mm-hmm. Experiment, Ticket to Ride, The Nordic Countries, uh, Hey, That's My Fish, and Ice Cool, <laughs> a couple of penguin-themed and also winter-themed board games. And if you don't mind being bummed out by your game, honorable mention to The Grizzled. Uh, winter bumps me out enough. I don't need a game to bum me out in the winter time. <laughs> but it's such a great game. It it's is not everybody. Game. Not not everybody loves living and being being in in World War One. Yeah, in, in the ditch. trenches in the winter. Yeah, but like, I I do because that game is great. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can find out more about where Justin Dowd is holding his start playing games, game nights, and mostly at Brass Cat in East Hampton every other Wednesday by following Star Playing Games on Facebook. Thank you, Justin. Thank you so much. No, oh, thank you. You come visit your old neighborhood anytime. Will do. <laughs> we'll bring the fish. You can choose which one is yours. Yeah, there's plenty of fish in my neighborhood. I live on an island. <laughs> <laughs> the next Start Playing Board Games will happen on Valentine's Day, February 14th, so grab someone you love and bring them on down to the Brass Cat. What better way to say I love you than with meeples and dice? Agreed. Up next, the host of our newest show, The Rundown, will introduce you to Carrie Zeldo. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. A new weekly radio show and podcast about what's happening in western Massachusetts. We'll add more local news to the region's public radio station beginning next week. The Rundown with Carrie Saldo premieres on Friday, February 2nd. Hey, that's not next week. That's tomorrow. Indeed. (laughs) From 9 to 10 a.m. following NPR's Morning Edition on 88.5 NEPM. Each week. Listeners will hear a lively conversation with reporters from newsrooms around Western Mass, giving their take on the news and events that shaped the week and providing analysis, context, insights, and varying perspectives. In-depth interviews and features with local newsmakers, community leaders, and just plain interesting people will round out the second half of the show. And joining us is the host of the show, The Rundown, making his debut tomorrow, Carrie Saldo. Thanks for joining us. I get an extra week to prep. You guys are amazing. Yeah, tomorrow's just a practice. Yeah, just a practice. And that music that we were just hearing is the the intro, the music for The Rundown. And uh, 
has local connections we and connections to the show. We owe you a huge debt of thanks. I was listening to your program, and I heard the love crumbs, and I was like, we need these guys to do our theme song. Nice. That's so cool, I mean, adding that local flair. Um, yeah. For those who aren't familiar with you and your work over the years, Carrie, give us a little bit of, of your background. Well, uh, so I grew up in and around the Berkshires in a little teeny tiny town called Stamford, Vermont, right <laughs> over the uh, Clarksburg border, and made my way into Massachusetts, eventually went to high school in Massachusetts, and uh, came back to start my journalism career after I got tired of sort of scraping by, paying my rent, uh, beg borrowing and stealing as a starving artist in Manhattan. (laughs) And I was like, "Uh, I have an English degree and I have a theater degree, but who will pay me to write a newspaper? (laughs) And uh, so that's how my journalism career was born. Desperation. (laughs) You were also um, a host here of... uh on WGBY, which That's is right. part of the NEPM brand of, of mm-hmm. Connecting Points. So we were kind of pseudo-colleagues for a time there. We I was were, like, and occasionally uh, you'd come on Connecting Point. Yeah, and, and contribute as an arts contributor to your show, so that's really fun. It's it's sort of full circle now, it isn't it? It has come full circle. And now we get to play in the same sandbox together, which is great. It'll be really fun, I think. Uh, what are you excited about? What are you nervous about? Uh, nervous about, you know, making a show quickly <laughs> on a, on a, with a short with a short runway, but um, excited about the fact that, you know, the show is really going to, especially the beginning of the show, which will be a live panel discussion with me plus three, as I like to say, three other area smart folks. So whether that's journalists or journalism adjacent people or just people in the know who are fully connected to what's happening here in our region. So really excited to bring those perspectives to the airwaves on a weekly basis. And it starts tomorrow, 9 a.m., right here on 88.5. And we're talking to Carrie Saldo, the host of The Rundown. So who are you? We know you. Who are the plus three for the first show tomorrow? The plus three for the first show tomorrow. Uh, so we'll have Elizabeth Roman, name near and dear to all of our hearts. Never heard of her. Part of the NEPM <laughs> News Department, for those who haven't heard of her. Exactly. Recently our... promoted. Yes, managing editor. And uh, Dusty Christensen, who is an independent journalist here in the region. For our purposes, tomorrow he's investigative editor of The Shoestring, which is an online pub doing a lot of great work in in our neck of the woods, and then Kevin Moran, who is the executive editor of the Berkshire Eagle and my former boss from my uh, newspaper days. Yeah. And so what are some of the topics that you're hoping to bring to the rundown? Oh, you're just, you just want all of the secrets, Monty. A, we don't yes. want to all hear what you're going to say the about secrets. the topics. We want to just hear what the topics are going to be. <laughs> we want to be excited about being up at of 9 course. o'clock in the of, morning of to course. listen to what you have to say, yeah, what people exactly. have to say. So barring breaking news, right. yeah. we, are, we are thinking about uh, a range of stories, and that's one of the things we're trying to do with the show as well is like each week you would feel like you are caught up on the news of Western Mass, whether you had a sick kid like I do right now at home or (laughs) you 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 just haven't had time for the week's news or you were on vacation or maybe you are an avid news buff and you just want one place that's sort of aggregating everything for you. That's our hope with the show. So tomorrow, among the things that I know we're going to talk about, there's been this um, and I I think you guys may have even touched on it here on the show, but just this discussion about a search of a Great Barrington middle school classroom where they went in uh, the police were notified about the book Gender Queer being in the middle school classroom's sort of side book library where students can go and read and spend some time once they've done their work and somehow that was translated to uh, escalated to the point of a uh, police search being needed. And so we're going to talk about uh, the work of the Berkshire Eagle, the coverage they've been doing there. And that, that search happened two months ago. Mm-hmm. This story does not look like it's going away nope. anytime soon. 
And it's fun to look, I mean, this particular issue I wouldn't say is fun, but the idea of looking at these issues that affect us on a national level where book banning is a a big thing that's going on all over the place and how it affects us here in this community. And connecting that to like the story that happened in Ludlow with their library too. And Mm -hmm. like it's not the first time that we're seeing this happen. It's just the most perhaps intense time that we're seeing it happen in the area. Yeah. That's going to be interesting. Absolutely. And then the second part of our show. terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the second part of our show each week, as Khalees mentioned, you know, we're going to kind of do a deep dive interview. And this month, we're looking at Black History the whole month. And one of my discussions is with Dr. Charmaine Nelson from UMass Amherst, the Slavery North Initiative. And they recently, uh, they, they came to my attention because they recently got a, a grant for $2.65 million from the Mellon Foundation. But I am just so grateful for that grant because it turned me on to all of the really fascinating work that they're doing at the initiative, including looking at why it is that much of what we know about slavery is so, so rooted to the South. We don't often think about the northern United States and Canada and what happened with slavery in direct relationship to slavery in our region and in Canada. So she's just, she was brilliant. Yep, yep. It's it's not as if slavery wasn't everywhere at one point. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> And I think the North is beginning to reckon with that in a way that it hadn't. And so this grant that you mascot is going to be an interesting way to look at it. And you'll be taking a deep dive on that on the show tomorrow. Absolutely. That's exciting, too. I'll, for one, say, Carrie Saldo, having worked with you in the past, and our director, Tony Dunn, you are his first wife, as we like to jokingly say. We, the You're Fabulous the Four and Three, are his uh, second wife, that bringing more <laughs> the new hot piece. local <laughs> talk to, <laughs> to these airways of NEPM. It's something that I, as a fan of public radio, um, have been longing for for these uh, airwaves on 88.5 for a very long time. And uh, nobody better than you, I think, to be doing that for us in this show. Very kind of you to say if we weren't on radio, you'd see that I'm blushing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, our intern is filming you, too, so maybe you'll see it as a reel. You might, might in fact, see you blushing. But, yeah, it's it's much needed, and we're really excited to hear what you have to say. Thank you. And and bring to our airwaves. The Rundown. With Carrie Saldo begins tomorrow, 9 a.m., right here on 88.5. Don't panic. It's going to be fine. (laughs) It's going to be amazing. It's going to be fine. And while you're talking about those hard-hitting, important topics, we're going to be talking about the guy who paddled down a Connecticut River in a pumpkin, Dave Rothstein. Except this time, he's made giant snow sculptures for which he has won awards. And he's going to come in and talk to us about his sculpting prowess. We'll also have Live Music Friday with Colony Motel, who are playing their last show ever. At Luthier's tomorrow on Groundhog's Day. We will be their penultimate show. Plus, we're going to taste old wine again, but this time at State Street with, uh, speaking of Civil War heroes, Grant and Lincoln. Oh, yeah. That's about how much it would cost if we could talk to you about that on. But we can't. We we just have to drink it. Yeah. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. We'll see you tomorrow. And Carrie will, too. (laughs) 